Can you imagine? Can you imagine having to wait 25 years for the promise of a son to be made good? 25 years, and as each one passes, as each of those years passes, that doubt compounds as to whether God's going to make good on his promise of a son. And then finally, he does. He does keep his promise, and and the son is born. And, And not only is the son born, but there is a measure of time anywhere from perhaps a decade up to maybe as many as nearly three decades of time for that father son bond to grow and to develop, and for a father to appreciate his son. And then, God wants that son back. And not just in any manner, not any method, not peacefully in some, using some means that would allow this son to avoid any suffering whatsoever, but perhaps in, in one of the most vicious ways that one man can end another's life, by violently stabbing him to death. Can you even imagine? This account, as challenging as it is before us this morning, is one that fits this theme of Lent where we focus on the ultimate sacrifice that God made in giving His Son. But not only that, it also serves as an introduction to our series, Rethinking Religion. And as we see God in this account from Genesis chapter 22, maybe it gives us a a window of understanding as to why those outside of Christianity struggle with religion or specifically a Christian God. The Christian God portrayed in this account as some bloodthirsty, twisted God that would make such a demand of somebody, not only condoning but commanding Child sacrifice. The key to understanding this account properly is is really looking right at the very beginning of the section. This is where we see not only uh, how we can understand it, but really a window into God's heart in this whole account. Right at the beginning of chapter 22, we're told sometime later, God tested Abraham. God was testing Abraham. Now we'll talk more about that that concept. We're going to explore what that means exactly this morning. But before we do, just kind of a, a side note. Do you notice Abraham's response right after that when God calls his name Abraham? You notice Abraham says, Here I am. That's a pretty different response from the first time that God called out to the first man after sin had been ushered into the world. Remember when God called looking for Adam, there was no, here I am, Lord. There was hiding. There was fear. Rightfully so, because he knew his sin and had every reason to be afraid of a holy, righteous God. But that's not Abraham's response. 
Because from that first fall into sin, the most beautiful promise of deliverance and redemption had been passed on. And that gift of faith had been planted in Abraham's heart, so he saw a different view of God. Not just a a God of vengeance and wrath and fear and punishment, but a God of goodness and grace and deliverance, which Abraham had seen already on many occasions in his own life as God had delivered him. And we see Abraham's obedience stemming from knowing how good his God is to him. So quite a a different response from that, that first one that gives us a window into understanding where Abraham is coming from. To know that we can endure trials because they come from and are allowed by a good, gracious God who always has our best interests in mind. Now back to that matter of testing. Testing is a, a unique thing And it's quite unlike a trap. Though a test and a trap might appear externally to be the exact same thing, somebody might be going through the the same thing, how do we determine what is a trap and what is a test? Well, the purpose, the intent behind them is very different, isn't it? A trap has one purpose. It is simply to catch somebody in the wrong. A trap is not set because somebody is still trying to decide if somebody was guilty or not. The trap is set to catch somebody in the act, to punish them, to catch them so that justice might be carried out. That's the purpose of a trap. That's not the purpose of testing. As we said with the the children's message, though you may look back at your education over the course of the years from elementary school into high school and college, when you were studying hard for those tests and quizzes, it may not have felt like it at the time, but yes, those were for your benefit. Sure, there's a a degree of, of aid that that provides the teacher or professor to know if you're grasping the material so that they can can work with you and help you make sure that you're learning. But ultimately, those tests and quizzes are for your benefit to know so that you can know if you're learning, if you are ready for the next level or next step of learning if you're picking up the material. When you are ready to drive, nobody just tosses you the keys and says, go for it. Good luck, you'll figure it out. You take a driver's test. And why? It's not for the benefit of the instructor who's with you in the car. He doesn't care how many times you have to retake that test. That's his job. He'll be there the whole time. But you care. Why? Because when you pass, that gives you the confidence that you know the rules of the road and that you have a right to be behind the wheel of that car. Testing is for your purpose. As we look at at God and this testing, it wasn't for God's purpose, but for Abraham's. Does God need to know what's in the heart of man? No, he already knows. He is omniscient. His omniscient eyes can see into the heart of every human being who has ever lived. So God was not wondering to himself, saying, What do I make of this Abraham? I'm just not sure what to think of him. Here's a couple of tests, and and that will make it clear to me where he really is. God knew Abraham's heart. God knows our heart. But you know who doesn't? We don't. 
We don't know our own hearts. We think we do, but that is one of the biggest mistakes that mankind can ever make, to assume that we have a good read on our hearts. The prophet Jeremiah kind of clarified for us why that is such wrong thinking. In chapter 17 of of the book by his name, Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And it's not just Jeremiah who thought that the heart was deceitful, that recognized there were issues. Jesus himself identified that in his teaching. In the Gospel of Mark, we're told Jesus in his teaching writes or says, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Yes, outward circumstances influence us. The way that we are raised and trained has bearing on on how we live and act. But ultimately, the biggest issue that any of us faces is the heart. And if the heart is the problem, then that means we are not capable of being able to diagnose or assess when that heart is in a bad place or going in the wrong direction. If it's broken, if our heart is the problem, then we can't determine whether we're going the right or wrong direction. So that's why God allows testing. And that was why God allowed testing in the case of Abraham. But you might ask, why did Abraham need to be tested? He had shown himself to be obedient. The Lord had told him to move. Everything that God had told him to do, he had done so far. Why did he need testing? Oftentimes, it's the test itself, it's it's the trial that reveals what the potential issue is. And if God knows our hearts, then that means he also is well aware for each and every one of us how inclined we are to, to make the stuff of this world priority number one in our hearts. Yes, even good things that God gives us the blessings of people and experiences and possessions that are from God, God knows full well that we are inclined to make those things our greatest priority, our greatest treasure in our heart. So as we look at this test, it becomes clear to us what God was concerned about with Abraham. This gift of a son that he had waited for 25 years and now had been granted, God knew potentially this son could replace me in Abraham's heart. Now that kind of makes God to sound like somebody who's insecure. So what if, if Abraham loved Isaac more than God? Can God handle that? Is he so needy? Does he require our validation, our affection, our praise? Does he really have to be number one in our hearts? God is not concerned about him being number one in our hearts for his sake. Do you, know, do you know this? God is still going to be God whether you believe him or not. We sometimes have these transactional thoughts in our minds with God. We say to ourselves, Lord, if you get me this job, I'll be a little more generous with my offerings. If you heal so-and-so, I'll start rethinking religion and maybe get back to going to church. You realize how silly that is? God doesn't need any of that from you or me. God doesn't need a thing from us. God doesn't need us to believe in him 
He's still going to exist into eternity whether you believe him or not. No, it's not for God's benefit. But God knows it's for our benefit that he needs to be number one in our hearts. Why? Because God is well aware that there is another force at work. And this force is not interested in testing you for your good, but in trapping you for your ultimate demise. Satan is not beyond using traps. And he will and does use any and any kind, any kind of trap under the sun. He will take sin and he will make it look appealing and he will make it look pleasurable until we are drawn into it, entangled in it, so that we either are so infatuated by it that we don't care about matters of forgiveness or salvation, or we are so stuck and entrenched in it that we believe that there is no hope for salvation or that we are beyond forgiveness and grace. He'll use sin to trap us that way. But he doesn't just use sin. He uses the good things that God gives to us in our lives. He uses family. He uses friends. He uses joy and pleasure. He uses our children. Anything that can replace him in our hearts, it doesn't matter to Satan. Bit by bit, as, as anything starts to, to entrench itself in our hearts, he longs to see our faith slowly fractured piece by piece until it can be swept out entirely from our hearts. And Satan does not care at all what it is that's in our hearts so long as it isn't the grace and forgiveness of God that is ours through the gospel. So long as it isn't our salvation. Satan doesn't care. But God does immensely, intensely. How much does God care? Can you imagine waiting not 25 years, but thousands of years for the promise of a son to be made good? And then after all of that waiting, finally the son is born. And not just any son, mind you, but the first time since the creation of the world that the father sees a son that lives in the perfection and the holiness that he always designed, originally intended from the beginning of creation. Finally, he sees a human being living in that way, and it's his own son. A son that he expressed his pleasure and delight with multiple times throughout his life. And then imagine realizing, knowing full well what the future held, knowing what that son was going to experience, and knowing that you had to turn your face from him and abandon him. And why would you do that? Well, it's the method, as you think about it, as we, we reflect on it, this Lent was not also a, a means that was peaceful or, or would limit suffering, but a method that is among the most sinister devised by mankind throughout history, the method of crucifixion. Can you even imagine Do you see why God allows tests 
to come into our lives. He cares about you that much so that the depth of that sacrifice of his only son would not count for naught, but that you would come to appreciate and know and believe that gift of salvation is yours. And when we see the price that he paid to make us his, then as often as necessary when he allows these tests into our lives to see them for what they are, the good that God wants us to see in him. That he wants us to recognize when we are wandering, when we are wayward, so that we can run back to him, the one who can and will strengthen our faith. Yes, through these very trials, through these tests, and will purify our hearts, will wash away our sin, will remind us how forgiven we are in Christ. And each and every time he does that, to strengthen and to fortify our faith even more for the next time that Satan unleashes a trap in our lives. And he strengthens us as we recall, as we reflect and remember our baptism, as we receive the very gifts that he gives to us, his body and blood and the bread and wine and the sacraments. Every time that we confess our sins in humble repentance and hear the sweet music of absolution that our sins are forgiven, we are strengthened for the next trap that the devil has laid for us. Can you even imagine You don't have to. God provided a substitute for Abraham on that mountain. To Abraham, he gave a ram. To you and me, he gave a redeemer. A redeemer that assures us that each and every trial and test that God allows us to experience and endure is for our good, our ultimate good so that we would see and appreciate that good, ultimate sacrifice of his only Son for us. Amen.